and welcome to another lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. On this occasion discussing and needlessly ranking the most recent incarnation of the James Bond film franchise, which ran from 2006 to 2021, with Daniel Craig in the starring role. I'm Marsh Davis, and joining me tonight, strapped to a gurney being etched by lasers over a shark-filled pool, is the international charm offensive codenamed Tom Senior. Good evening. <laughs> Tom, what's your feeling about Bond? What's your history with Bond? Did you grow up watching Bond? I did grow up watching Bond, and I have therefore a kind of ingrained built-in automatic affection for the series, in spite of all its kind of strange weird, camp weirdness and at moments incredibly problematic <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, ideas. Um, and yeah, I've, uh, I'm always drawn to it. I'll always try and go see it at the cinema or catch it eventually. And I've, I've seen them all um, and some of them a few different times. Um, and I find it fascinating as a kind of an action film series, but also as a kind of capitalist object that uh, <laughs> that uh, essentially exists, especially in the modern era, to sell a very specific type of masculinity. Uh, and it's interesting to see what kind of trinkets it chooses to push in front of you uh, as kind of status symbols. Uh, you know, the, the things Bond wears, the things he he, he uh, drinks, the things he, like his watches, everything is all kind of built into this very specific type of idea about what a man a cool man might look like uh, in the modern world so yeah it's fascinating stuff yeah it's really interesting to pick apart the the, the series in terms of its purpose versus what is actually laudable about it versus <laughs> what i might want it to be mm. i think all of those things are, are probably pulling in very different directions oh, um, yeah but That's... we will definitely get into that as we go along mm. i mean I, I grew up watching the brosnan bonds i uh you're a bit younger than i am i think but i imagine they were on at the cinema at the time you were of a cinema going age they're the ones i was i grew up on as well definitely well i don't know about you but they sort of chart uh, a pretty crucial period of my adolescence of sort of critical dawning. Like the first one came out when I was 12, mm, right. GoldenEye. And obviously that is a, a fucking amazing film I for a 12 year old to see. I love GoldenEye. <laughs> but then by the time Die Another Day comes out, I was 19 and it was a shit film. No, <laughs> so... I think whatever age you're at, that is an absolute dreck. It is an un unbelievably bad film. I remember rewatching it a few years ago. It was, I thought, oh, I've been too harsh on it. No, <laughs> things are no. mess. Yeah, I, but I, I think maybe because of that, but also because at 19, I was trying to be a really cool guy mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to be cool in a cool way. And The Matrix had come out and James Bond just felt quite silly at the time, yeah. you know, notwithstanding the invisible cars and all of that nonsense. But um, but like you, like, I feel like the franchise has this hold over me in a way in which I feel very, very, very embarrassed to admit. <laughs> like, it, it feels like a national myth in a way. Mm, yeah. Uh, and it's it's one I bought into as a child, just like the idea that you know we're the good guys, and Britain has this fella going around nobbling the bad dudes all over the world. And it doesn't matter that it's not legal at all because it's right, and only we can do it because we're a moral power in a messy world. Mm. And I, I don't know that I thought about it in those terms, but it's definitely a kind of level of indoctrination <laughs> that you come away from uh, as a Brit from these films. And I feel a bit of a weird nationalistic pride about Bond. Uh, yeah. Even though I hate nationalism and I kind of hate Bond, yeah, <laughs> it's surprising to me that it's so it exports so well. Like mm. I, I wonder why, like it has such a kind of it does so well globally, even though it is this massively <laughs> indulgent vision of what people might think Britain was in the uh, in the super spy era. 
Um, and also just kind of find it endlessly, fasc- endlessly fascinating the conversation between James Bond and the actual intelligence services, who uh, I think like for one of the films they put out a double page newspaper spread, um, spent loads of money saying, this isn't actually <laughs> what we do. Please don't <laughs> think that we actually just murder people <laughs> all over the place. Uh, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's it's always it's there's always a national conversation around Bond as well, and it's, it's sort of lurching attempts to uh, move with the times uh, in often tokenistic and stupid ways. <laughs> it's also <laughs> part of its part of its appeal to me. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I, I I share I share um, the thing you said when you said you felt slightly embarrassed about loving it, um, but I I think it's okay because <laughs> I, I, I think unless you actually want to be James Bond and think he's great <laughs> you're probably fine yeah I wonder I mean because I you know as as I sort of uh, slowly across the course of my life awoke to all the many problems with Bond uh, I began to feel very differently about Bond and reading things that were critical of Bond like um, Alan Moore's um, comic which deals with the sort of Bond surrogate in which he sort of quite expertly picks apart all the problems with Bond as a character. Mm. Uh, I began to really welcome the idea of a reboot which sort of addressed these things. But now I'm not sure <laughs> whether, I don't know whether that's, there's, there was ever a kind of sufficiency of earnestness with addressing those things that could have carried it through. Mm. I feel like you know Bond sort of ends up sliding back into this sort of glib and sort of camp thing, even though it sort of pays lip service to real politic. It's going to be interesting as we go through these films one by yeah. one. I should say that we are going to spoil all of the films in in depth, and so uh, this is your spoiler warning. If you actually want to experience these films afresh, go away and do so. Oh, before we start though, who's your favourite pre-Craig Bond? I I think it has to be Brosnan. Uh, I think it's just I, I bet I bet this charts. So everyone who grow, the Bond you grow up with is probably the one that you. you cements Bond as an idea in your mind and you you associate the face and the features and the uh, mannerisms with with the character and uh Pierce Brosnan was quite a svelte uh and kind of uh unflappable but also very clean Bond in a way that like you never mm. got, you know you know he's never gets his uh suit messed up he never had, wears blood or dirt especially like Daniel Craig does and I think that was especially in gold like he drives a tank through a bridge and then a statue falls down and he adjusts his tie it's, it's, uh, uh, that's kind of what James Bond was to me growing up uh, and then it felt weird going back to Sean Connery and, and being like oh this is what the character started out like it doesn't feel like the same guy because I, I think the actors oh, they're not. <laughs> no no they're not but also the actors bring a lot to Bond and yeah which is kind of fascinating because Bond never says anything interesting really like he never like the, the actual words coming out of his face aren't particularly you know important to anything but the the delivery and the kind of mannerisms and the, the way uh, the actors hold themselves while playing bond all of that actually that that's what bond is really to me is as, as an essence on screen yeah I'm, i i think sean connery for me actually even though i did grow up with pierce brosnan and i think it's i, I I, st- I prefer the pierce brosnan films mm. well at least film i love goldeneye <laughs> yeah um the one but that, but Pierce Brosnan, like you say, he's very clean. But he's not at all deep or relatable as a no, character there, no. and he's not at all required to be. Um, but there's something about Sean Connery that invites a bit more kind of complexity, and I don't know that it's really about his performance so much as his person. Like mm. he just has a sort of uh, personable quality to him, uh, as well as being suave. Whereas Brosnan was just kind of smooth in quite a cold way. And I feel like Sean Connery also has that edge to him where he's kind of rugged and feral. Yeah. I think there's that that famous, I can't remember, it was um, 
uh, one of the broccolis, I believe, who's trying to convince Ian Fleming that Connery was right for the role. And he and she said that he moves like a panther. I think that's absolutely right. Like there's mm. a kind of amb- ambiguous quality to him just physically, which is kind of alluring and threatening. Uh, and that just brings a kind of complexity to the role through his presence, even though, you know, acting wise, the things he says, the films that he's in aren't necessarily particularly good. <laughs> mm. um, and I feel the same way about Craig, actually. I, f- I feel like Daniel Craig has that sort of um, kind of pivot to him where he can be sort of charming and, and kind of affable, but at the same time, there's a kind of a glimmer of a killer uh, in his eyes yeah, as well. Absolutely. Never liked Roger Moore, though, no, at all. No. Like, um, even though the, some of those films are fun, I just found him extraordinarily, almost like emetically creepy um, <laughs> before even really having like any kind of social conscience regarding Bond as like a terminal sex pest. Mm. I just found more to be just a repellent presence in all these films. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I understand that's controversial. Some people hold Roger Moore very dearly to their hearts. Yeah, I've, and they're perverts. I never joked with them, Roger Moore. He felt like a bit of carry-on character in a way that was just kind of gurning mm-hmm. for the camera in a way that I never, the, the raised eyebrow and everything. I, yeah, I, I never quite got on with him. And then the rest all sort of blur into one a little bit for me. Yeah. I, 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 I understand people have uh, fond feelings towards Dalton, etc. Mm. Um, but I've, I've watched them so long ago, they didn't make uh, a lasting impression on me. Yeah, same, but... same. Should we talk about Casino Royale? Yes. 2006 is when it came out. It was directed by Martin Campbell, uh, who previously directed Goldeneye. um, And also uh, the brilliant British uh, TV drama Edge of Darkness Mm. and the terrible reboot, film reboot of Edge of Darkness uh, with Mel Gibson. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I I remember that exists, it's awful. Watch the original TV series, though. It's great. Yeah, and really... Uh, dark in alarming taboo ways which would never be made as a television right. series today it's terrifying actually terrifying so. yeah um and it's interesting because it's uh, 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 returning to the even though this is a reboot famously intended to be a reboot in under the shadow of the born uh, sort of born identity hmm. um they bring back uh two writers from sort of almost the 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 campest end of the brosnan films uh neil purvis and robert wade who um had previously done plunkett and mclean which was a, pe- a sort of comedy period drama f- featuring uh two of the stars of train spotting um robert carlisle and johnny lee miller um and it was not very good at all but for mm. some reason this caught the eye of uh, one of the broccolis and uh, they were ushered into the Bond franchise on uh, The World Is Not Enough, and they returned for Die Another Day, and then they made Johnny English. Um, And somehow they retain credits on all of the Craig era Bonds too. Mm. And what happens almost every time, like uh, throughout the history of the the Craig era Bonds, is a director comes on board, usually kind of like an auteur director. I I know Danny Boyle was was attached to it at one point. Um, And they say, no, we're bringing in our own writer team. We're gonna we have our own bold vision for this, and then the project sort of comes off the rails somewhere. And uh, I would assume there are some sort of creative differences with the producers who maybe have their own idea of what Bond should be and return to. And 
somehow Neil Purvis and Robert Wade always end up coming back on board. Um, I don't know whether that's uh, to the you know to the, uh, a positive effect on the projects because you can never tell what people wrote. But I wonder if the way that the Craig films sort of end up re- kind of veering, start off gritty, gritty reboot, and end up veering back towards uh, sort of rote Bond tick boxing to some extent. I wonder if that is the effect of. Uh, those writers' influence from bonds of your coming back on board and trying to rest it back into a shape which the producers are happier with. Mm. Mm. That's complete speculation. I have no evidence to back that up. It's a good theory. I like that. <laughs> and also uh, joining them on the screenplay uh, writing business is Paul Haggis, who directed Crash and wrote Million Dollar Baby and Letters to Iwo Jima. Um, and I assume he is there to bring some sort of, you know, chin strokey heft to Casino Royale. I think it's interesting with uh, movie credits, sometimes people get drafted in. Often, often this is what the executive producer role uh, is, I un- understand, um, where just attaching names is also an act of marketing. Um, mm. Or a favour to someone in a studio somewhere <laughs> who wants to attach a certain person to a certain project to, uh, you know, um, grease the wheels, whatever. Uh, so it's, it's very hard to tell, like... Uh, who wrote what and who drafted what when and who actually had an influence over the final scripts, which I think the, the, the script is, seems decent to me in Casino Royale. I feel that I oh, greatly yeah. enjoyed, um, actually, I would say. Yeah. I'll give a brief synopsis, shall I? Yeah, go for it. So it's, uh, the series has been rebooted uh, back to a freshly blooded double O agent. Bond is now tasked with disrupting the plans of Le Chiffre who's a banker who short sells stock on successful companies then engineers terrorist attacks uh, to tank their share prices. And MI6 believe that Le Chiffre is part of a larger organization and that they can get information on that organization if they flip him by applying a lot of pressure. So Bond foils an attack on an airline organized by Le Chiffre and Le Chiffre is forced to hold a high stakes poker game in order to win back the funds he's lost uh, before his various debts come due. But Bond is also going to face him at the table in the Casino Royale. Nice. This is a very good film. This is, is. I watched it. I watched it uh, last week, and I was like, "Wow, the, it races along," and it's like it's so. Um, it, it felt like the, it was a reboot that was trying to return to Fleming's vision of Bond as kind of a thug, um, uh, mm. a misogynist thug. Uh, and the very first introduction you get to Daniel Craig as Bond is him kicking the crap out of someone in a bog somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, as he as he has a gun in this kind of black and white sequence on. A, a mastermind he sort of uh the, the the mastermind asks him about his goon how did he die and bond just says badly and then it cuts to him absolutely <laughs> bludgeoning this man to death with the sink um and then uh, the, the following kind of chase sequence uh basically is a big kind of statement about what they want to do with bond they want to uh, want to use daniel craig's heft and physical presence to make him a kind of battering ram uh so there's this uh, informant who, who runs from bond and he's a, a parkour master and he's kind of vaulting through cranes and across the landscape and bond is literally running through walls he just runs through walls <laughs> yeah. just emerges on the other side and poses and then henches like flexes and then just, <laughs> just runs through another wall and it's like okay all right it's, it's a bit different to brosnan um, <laughs> a little bit a touch different uh, and he's just got a filthy and just like <laughs> uh, a very funny bit where at the end the guy just pulls a gun on bond um uh on top of a crane, but uh, implausibly, and then fires and realizes the gun's empty, throws the gun at Daniel Craig. Bond catches it, just bashes him with it. Uh, and it's just, uh, 
uh, yeah, it's the guy who seems who has like very brute force way of doing things. Uh, and if he gets within six feet of you, he 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 will just win. <laughs> That's kind of his whole strategy oh, yeah. to approaching uh, every problem that he kind of comes across in Casino Royale. But then you go into this really interesting tense poker game in the middle as well, um, where everyone at the table has some kind of interesting backstory and reason for being there that's gradually revealed, even as during the breaks between hands, uh, Bond has to fight off assassins and then get poisoned at one point. Um, And it's an absolute riot. It's so much fun. And Bond is kind of like this icy, pretty awful person who, uh, yeah, I don't know, what was your take on it? Oh, yeah, all of those things, definitely. I love the fact that the Bond in this is, is you know, young and he's inexperienced, uh, but he's also overconfident and he's <laughs> petulant and he's naive and he's incredibly fallible. Like, I mean, he, you know, obviously he can do a good punch, but it doesn't signal to me really the film that he is a hero in the same way that uh, other Bonds and later Bonds do. You feel that... Daniel Craig's young Bond could really do anything and not necessarily the right thing. And that's actually quite scintillating to watch. Um, He makes choices and you don't know whether he is making a morally good choice at all. And I think, although I like Craig throughout his run as Bond, I think the more kind of explicitly heroic he gets, the less interesting he becomes. I firmly Mm. believe that like Bond is, is at least uh, in the text, something of a villain, you know, yeah. Or easily could be. I think that's the, the interesting thing about him. He's a, he is a gorilla in a tuxedo. And I think it's it's important because the later films sort of flirt with actual grown-up ideas about, you know, Britain's new role in the world and stuff. But it never has the follow-through because Bond's moral compass is sort of unassailable. But I think in this film, it's very much in question. And I think that's quite exciting to watch. Um, and exactly what you say about it's sort of containment on a on a single long evening in a single place i think that's really good for several reasons i think it gives the film like this this structure and identity which is all its own but also that though the constraints of that location force you know interesting writing (laughs) Mm. out of out of the filmmakers and it's and it also signals that it's not just simply following formula you know i think that's that's a real problem with the later craig bonds um is that after this sort of bold beginning, they end up falling back on sort of box checking bong cliches like, oh, yeah. we have to move continents every 20 minutes. Oh, we have to have a villainous sidekick with a funny hat. And, you know, <laughs> oh, we have to have a showdown in the villain's secret hideout. Because Casino Royale doesn't have a, a a big villain showdown. It doesn't have right. a secret hideout. And it shows you that you literally don't need any of that. You can just make a good film and Bond will take care of himself, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah. not like, but also at the same time, it's not like Casino Royale isn't in dialogue with the Bonds of the past. He still, you know, he still swiftly beds uh, a woman and gets her killed. Mm. Uh, but the a point is being made with that about how bad that is. <laughs> and yet the subsequent films sort of repeat that trope because it's now a thing that Bond does. But in, in Casino Royale, it feels like it has something to say with that. My only wish is that it had been sort of the final word on, on that, really. Oh, it sure wasn't. No. <laughs> it sure was a trope that was repeated um, in very different contexts that delivered very different messages about <laughs> uh, how cool Bond was by doing this. Uh, yeah, he's he's. there's a bit like... Um, where M, who's um, played brilliantly by Judy Dench, who's a real shining light in the whole series of uh, mm. Craig films. Uh, she's always excellent. And her Casino Royale does a really good job of establishing her relationship with Bond um, as being kind of fractious and her 
in this film, very much reluctantly having to use him, knowing that he could just cause terrible, terrible damage to uh, the British interest if he goes in the wrong direction. And, and there's a bit where she talks about, I think she says something like, um, before she explains a bit of plot, it's like, this may be too much for a blunt instrument to understand. But, mm. and it's like, yes, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is kind of when it, a line comes up for a film like that, it f- gives you a framework to see the character as this fallible, monstrous thing and not as kind of big superhero bond. Uh, it's, it's having someone just say that, leave it out in the air, even just like before you get on with the exposition, I think just is a really, really useful way into sort of asking the, the audience to question whether Bond, uh, who randomly just punches people and kills people all the time, whether he's actually kind of doing it for any particular reason other than his own. I think it's, it's mm. a really savvy moments like that, that, uh, that make this film much more interesting than any of the other Craig era films, I think. Oh, yeah. I'm interested to ask you about the action and what your recollection of it was, because I remember it being sort of uh, a response to the Bourne films by becoming grisly realistic. But actually, that's not really the case. Like, there's there's a lot of grim violence in it. Like, the, the expression of that action is much more violent uh, explicitly than in mm. previous Bond films, I'd say. But it's still quite cheeky and glib. Like, he still evades bullets with this supernatural sort of <laughs> yeah. level of luck. And he like pursue you know in that brilliant parkour sequence when he plows through walls he's sort of following like this inbuilt sat nav for how this half <laughs> yeah, building's true. working, um, yeah. They, and but but then there's a later fight in the stairwell which is genuinely really grim. Yeah, you know. What was your what was your memory of that of the kind of tenor of the action and how did it match up with it? I'm watching it again now. I think my initial memory was of the gritty stuff. I'd have forgotten how silly that opening action sequence actually is. Uh, it wasn't until rewatching it, uh, the parkour chase sequence, uh, that I realised how ludicrous it was. And you know, it starts on the ground and goes through literally through a building, uh, uh, like through the walls, and then up onto the top of a crane on the dock. And uh, it's absolutely nonsense if you stop to question it for even a split second. But it's very, very entertaining. The bits I remembered were um, uh, the the punch-ups in the bathroom, the punch-up in the stairwell. And um, because, I think because of marketing, the bit where he flips the supercar, uh, trying to mm. avoid hitting uh, Vespa. Uh, um, just, yeah, it doesn't that, make any sense, but I do like the fact they threw away that car straight away. <laughs> it's really funny, actually. Yeah, mm. There's, They do one joke with it where uh, I, th- I think it, like he, uh, there's a thing where I think he's, he's talking to Vespa and uh, taking her back to, she's like, oh, do you live nearby? And he says, Yes, and she gets in the car, and he just drives around the car park, and then parks back up to the hotel again, oh, yeah. which is nice. And then immediately crashes the car, and like the next scene, the car's in, <laughs> which is which is funny. Because obviously, um, many other films just like they slaver over the car, including the the latest one. Like that, for some reason, mm-hmm. again, it's one of these kind of very very laboured, pretty out of date, silly kind of badges of masculinity that the the film is still absolutely obsessed with, probably for uh for contract reasons and advertising reasons that they just have to have to have a car and it has to be just unattainable but then you know you get the close-up shot of a logo um mm. uh, so it's nice to see it just pop up and get immediately wrecked <laughs> it's really funny yeah <laughs> and it's a spectacular wreckage as well like it's a credit to whoever set up the the weird ramp that made it sort of flip 10 times sideways into a ditch very good yeah i mean sort of talking of uh these sorts of bond tropes i think his relationship with vespa is uh sort of 
the, again, like the final word on uh, Bond girls, like how how he is treated by Vesper, how they eventually uh, find a burgeoning love between them, and the, the the fear he has that he's going to be betrayed, and everything after feels like that was everything that needed to be said about all the preceding Bond girls. Mm. And then subsequent films have been like, well, who's our Vespa this time? And you're like, no, no, <laughs> yeah. no, that's, that's not what, that's not the point of it, you know? Uh, but I, I, I really, I really like Eva Green's performance uh, yeah. and how she just completely, what's, what's clever about it is she completely ruins, ruins Bond's trust in a believable way because he's such a petulant <laughs> and uh, unempathic asshole whilst somehow letting the audience know that his anger is totally unwarranted and there's <laughs> yeah. like there's some subtlety in pulling that off i think yeah and it, the big the, the biggest one in the film is bit, uh, at the end where bond's on the photo i think m or someone um after vespers died and um it's like job's done the bitch is dead and mm. uh, and it's, it's a pretty heavy line to drop in uh it's the first time bond almost never swears um and even this kind of very minor relatively mild swear word uh is delivered with such venom that it's actually a pretty kind of uh, almost a risky thing to drop in in the framework of a, a, what's essentially can often be perceived as being a superhero film. Um, yeah. So, if, so I think you're right that the Casino Royale evades those trappings and isn't a superhero film at all and doesn't feel like one. It feels like it's kind of messy, brutal uh, kind of action film with a significant, a significant love interest to it. Um, and that him dropping that line is actually kind of the cruelest thing he he does in that film. It feels like mm. the weight of it. Um, and I think that the way I think that lands in Casino Royale uh, in the way that he you know the way he treats women, his women the bold women in the rest of the films just doesn't at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's unfortunate because you're right. It could have reframed that. But then in the very next in that the next film or at the end of the film they start naming cocktails after Vesper and in these agonizing moments of kind of uh, product placement where someone asks, someone always asks Bond what he's drinking, Martini Shaker, not started, not service, mm. of course, um, but they turn that uh, in these films into uh, uh, double Gordon's gin, house vodka, uh, thin shave of lemon, I call it the Vesper, and it's like, no, don't make her into <laughs> this, please. What? You've laboured to create this character that's going to motivate Bond for the next X number of films and actually kind of perhaps change him as a person, mm. a sense of loss and the fact that he, he should perhaps care about people sometimes. Um, no, it's a cocktail now. And they're so the the dialogue is so honkingly awful that they're, just, they're, they're trying to make it happen. They're trying to... They mm. want bars across the world to sell the Vesper. And it's like, no, it's so horrible. But, but on another point, he's asked, he asked for a vodka martini and the, and the waiter asks him whether he wants it shaken or stirred. And he says, do I look like a give a damn? Which <laughs> is, a, which is yeah. a, it's a bit on the nose in terms of like a response to preceding bonds, but it is, it's still a good line. I, I reckon they had that one as the line. And then somebody said, oh, but what are we going to do with our Gordon's gin partnership? <laughs> exactly <guys?"> right. Yeah. <laughs> there is yeah. a, there is a, um, just to say on Vesper for one more moment, uh, obviously Bond has issues with asking consent, as we see throughout uh, this run of movies. Um, but there is a, a weird extra place for it to go when he uh, comforts Vesper in the shower, having just brutally murdered two men in right. her presence. And he begins to suck her fingers. And oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, that seems so strikingly odd to mm. me. I don't know if it's odd in a 
oh, intentional, creepy, uh, edge of darkness way, mm. or whether it's just uh, just a, a absolute clangor. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> it's one of those moments where, like, he starts he starts doing it, and it's like, what is hap- happening? <laughs> like, it's, uh, and she's what's weird is like uh, she's completely indifferent to it. Uh, yeah, obviously, she's like, uh, it's like <laughs> I know like, she's been traumatized by seeing people brutally murdered by Bond in a stairwell. Um, but then, like, oh, it's because it's also not alluring in the slightest. It's just a very, mm. very strange thing to do, <laughs> especially in that moment. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I don't know. I find it hard to be charitable about it, really, because uh, throughout the, the advances that Bonds make. Bond makes I think like sometimes it's intended to be sexy in some way but yeah. honkingly awfully isn't uh and in a way that you'd hope that writers would catch <laughs> right a lot of the kind of other outside of that scene a lot of the kind of sexy tete-a-tete verbal jousting they do is, is absolutely terrible yeah it's unbelievable um, bad. so yeah. yeah I'm willing to believe that that, that, that <laughs> the writers just don't know what it is like to <laughs> to talk to an, a woman um but yeah hmm I think it's on safer ground with the villain, though. I think uh, Mads Mikkelsen, oh, yes. as, as Le Chiffre is, is a superb, so small, small, grimy little man. Yeah. I scrapping love... over a measly $100 million. Yes, yes. You know, that's what's so good about it. I think Bond works really well at that scale, strangely, mm. even though, you know, previous Bonds have all been about shark tanks and volcano bases. But I think that's wrong. <laughs> you know, it's love, great that they've got this little sweaty dude who's yeah. just, you know, horrible. This desperate weasel who's of all the of all the motivations the Bond villains have, he just needs some money. He just there are people coming to break his legs, and he needs some money. And he has this ridiculously like extraordinarily uh, you know circuitous way of getting that money, which is awesome because it involves a poker game. Uh, <laughs> but also like Mads Mikkelsen is just great at staring across the table at someone. Like he's so good at, at that. But he's also like when he's um, literally at the, towards the end of the film bashing Bond's balls uh, in a like. Mm. Uh, painful scene to watch uh, <laughs> uh he's actually like he, he gets desperate and ang- angry and bond gets to him and then like uh again he sort of uh as mickelson's character kind of regresses to this sort of childish uh just fury he's like just give me the money <laughs> route one just needs this thing to survive it's almost uh you know uh it's it's He's almost sympathetic in his desperation i think that, yes. I think that's one of the things that i quite like about it and he's not meant to be killed Either like MI six wants want him on their side, and yet there's there's no boss battle, there's no big no. showdown, uh, a, a, no buildings explode. Uh, he just well it, it, they do, but later, but <laughs> and he's and he's just wiped out, you know, by another yeah. criminal uh, agency. And I think that's uh, what what I we'll, we'll definitely get onto this, but I think a lot of the later bonds, especially the um, ones by Sam Mendes, are all so desperate to discuss what Bond is and isn't uh, and its themes. And actually, this film just uh, is happy to show that you can dispense with them and do something different without having to kind of flag it all the time. Mm. That line about, you know, not caring about, you know, whether it's shaken or stirred aside, the fact that it, without comment, changes the the kind of formula or dispenses with the formula entirely, I think is, is, is the most interesting thing uh, yeah. about it. And I, I wasn't expecting the final uh, final sort of uh, phase of the film at all when I was watching it the first time in the cinema. Uh, I thought that that was the end of the film, basically. And then mm. Bond goes into the sunset, and then the sunset keeps happening. And then it, the sunset keeps happening. I was like, oh, 
this film isn't ending yet. So and then it, they have this beautiful life and they, they go around the world and it's still not ending. It was like, oh, oh no. And then sort of this sort of danger warning sirens start going off and you're like, uh, uh, oh no. It's like a new film has started and uh, you're just waiting for this paradise to be punctured by something horrible. Um, and when it is, for that to be the kind of the finish to the film and the, the final moment, Bond becomes like regresses to becoming truly bitter and uh, psychopathic killer again. I think like it's, I, that's a hard. I imagine that's a hard sell to get through. You know, as, as a blockbuster film, to not have mm. the boss battle, not have the final third, not have the explosions, but to have this very character-driven sequence, admittedly with some pretty ridiculous explosions <laughs> when, that, yeah. when she does actually die. But to actually kind of make that the focus of the end of the film is actually really, I thought was really effective and unexpected um and i wish and it also just kind of rejected the act structure a bit by sort of starting something a bit new at the end that i wasn't perhaps expecting mm. uh, so i thought yeah it's just a it's a great film it's such a good watch as well and it's about two hours long it's a sensible length which <laughs> yes most of the other ones are not <laughs> they just get longer oh, and longer yeah. like, like harry potter just end it's <laughs> like growing and growing like this weird bacterial sponge monster. She just can't. Desperately <laughs> needs an editor. I can help. Yeah. Should we? Uh, should we move on to Quantum of Solace? Let's. Yeah. Uh, firstly, what a what a fucking name, right? Jesus. Christ. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's been said so many times, but wow, though, like that's a choice. Yeah. It's, uh, this one was directed uh, by Mark Forster, who's uh, uh, in an odd. And possibly questionable choice, I would say. <laughs> Having uh, previously directed Monsters Ball, uh, Finding Neverland, and I th- I'm not sure if he had directed or was about to direct World War Z at this point. Mm. Um, none of which are great films, I don't think, actually. Uh, and uh, But the writing team of the first film is back. Paul Haggis, Neil Purvis, and Robert Wade. It... Uh, picks up where the first film left off. Bond is on the scent of the organization that operated and ultimately killed the Shifra. And the trail leads him to a company called Quantum and a weaselly environmentalist called Dominic Green. Uh, it seems Green and the mysterious Cabal, of which he is a part, is helping to stage a coup in Bolivia uh, with the secret aim of securing ownership of the country's water supply, which will then be held to ransom. And then um, part of a telescope array explodes for literally no reason. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think much of this film, Tom. I think. Uh, no, it's I think I kind of hate it actually. But and but I have to say, rewatching it now after being pleasantly surprised by Casino Royale, uh, and that you know Casino Royale was still as good as I thought it was. Quantum of Solace really manages to recapture the same sense of total deflation I felt in the cinema the first time round. Mm. It's just a it's just a really poorly constituted film, I think, by comparison. And I, I actually I actually quite like the overall plot, um, which I think you know, with this this kind of coup in the uh, this environmental services company, I feels like it still feels quite restrained on the scale of Bond villainy. Yeah. You know, it's but it's still an escalation on on Le Chiffre. Um, although I do find the idea that like an environmental services company could actually be a front for a evil empire is a bit like a plot point from a spectator columnist's first political <laughs> thriller. Um, but Dominic Green, uh, played by Matthew Amalric, is 
really good and yeah. in a similar way to Mads Mikkelsen in that he's a very very sweaty little man or oily, um, yeah. and he's weak and vicious and he has glistening goblin eyes <laughs> and a little feral smirk yeah. he's got um, a great hunch as well that the actor really gets into it it's very good yeah I do, I, the whole oil exploitation bait and switch with the water supply it's not quite as subtle a plan as the film thinks it can hand us, <laughs> hand wave us into believing, but it's I, I think it's a good premise, and I like the 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 you know the CIA's role in it with Felix Leiter and David Harbour as Greg Beam as a, a bent station chief. So um, that just sort of passes out; they just disappear from the film in the end. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I, even though I like some aspects of it, I think that the just. The thing that is bad about it, that is enduringly poor throughout, is that the the construction of the film, in terms of its cinematography and editing, yeah, is just nauseating. I think it's just close cropped, cut to incoherence. Like a lot of the action scenes are spliced with cuts back to irrelevant civilian drama. Like there's an opera and a horse race, mm. and it cuts back and forth and between this and whatever's going on with Bond, just to the extent that you cannot invest in any sense of continuity. And like, there's a bit in the opening where Bond's chasing a dude, and the dude he's chasing brushes past this old woman who's hauling this crate up a, a crate of fruit up a stairwell, and the fruit drops. And like, I counted this: there are at least seven cuts yep. to show the fruit basket falling over, <laughs> and and that's a generous, generously few cuts that I'm counting there, depending on when you start and stop counting. And it's of absolutely no consequence to the actual chase at all. It's just in the way, and I feel like those problems just extend beyond just the moment to moment scenes like there's uh, i don't know i wouldn't call it a continuity problem as such because the problem is really that the filmmakers didn't think that there was a problem <laughs> at all is uh, so there's a point where bond and olga kurilenko uh literally fall out of a plane and into a styrofoam cave containing a dammed up river then they have a heart to heart about vengeance and then they walk through a desert in seconds and they're into a village full of bolivians looking in an empty well and shouting denada you know? <laughs> it's just like oh come on try no. a little bit harder than that i don't know how did how did you find this <laughs> poor 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 film um, I don't know if you've ever been in an old bus uh, with poor suspension and then you, you perhaps pass from uh, a normal road and over perhaps like a rough road and the entire cage rattles around you in a way that's like deeply unpleasant goes up through your ass and into your bones. Um, that's what this film is like to watch as a kind of as a uh, experience for your brain uh, in, mm. in terms of just it just just having no consistency of like focus at any moment in terms of what you're actually literally looking at on the screen conversation has been shot from random <laughs> random angles that will change like this the camera never sits still it's cutting all over the place and it's it, i i was bludgeoned into a kind of stupor by it the extent that i just couldn't think about anything else just because i was just trying to follow what they were trying to do and it was just on a just a brain function level impossible mm. <laughs> and that's just i think that's just uh, watching films like this kind of, kind of helps me to appreciate actual good film craft, you know, actual good yeah. cin cinematography and what it takes to actually lead your gaze through the film and lead your gaze across these beautiful vistas. Like it, it's kind of a film about locations as much as anything. It's like, hey, look at we're here now. Look at this. Whoa, vista. Ah, cut, cut, cut. Bond. Oh, he's somewhere else now. Oh, desert. Ah, oh, planes. Planes. A massive, really extended plane sequence that's horrible and really implausible. 
Oh, why does the plane explode? Why does the, why, why does the plane why, explode? I don't know. It's just like they're in front of it and they, they seem to psych it out and it just pivots <laughs> yeah. into a mountain. <laughs> the, it, it cuts, cuts inside, obviously, at like 100 cuts a second. It cuts back and forth. And he just wrenches the, right, uh, the wheel to the right and just immediately crashes into a, a mountain for no reason at all. <laughs> it's just... Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> I do, I do, I, I kind of appreciate the the brazen exposition, which explains why the building at the end explodes. <laughs> it's like that, there's no reason for anybody to be there. It's part of the European Southern Observatory, incidentally, as I was uh, informed by my partner. Um, and it, there's no, it's, it's not anybody's secret space home. It's not somebody's poison farm or a missile base or anything. The characters literally go there for no reason. <laughs> yeah. And and then there's this piece of dialogue where one of the characters says, "What's that noise?" Oh, it's just the fuel cells. The whole compound runs right. on them. Sounds unstable. <laughs> <laughs> and then, it's, but the thing is, it's not like Bond even detonates it. A car mm. just has a prang in the garage <laughs> and the entire building goes up. It's, it's just absolute dreck. No, it's, but, it, uh, it's, it's mm. weird. It's terrible. It's worth mentioning, I think, that the writer's strike uh, was happening when this was sort of being shot and finessed. Um, but... I think I don't think that can explain it. Th- th- that's that's not why it's unwatchable to me. Like it's it's the physical experience of putting my eyes on this thing <laughs> makes me hate it. There are uh, lots of ways in which they uh, edit things into existence that don't need to exist. Hmm. Like, I, I, and I feel like they they were trying to create a storyline out of offcuts of of shoots, uh, and the, the the material they had just didn't substantiate the kind of story they're trying to tell. So there's like. A particular bit where um, Bond is talking to Mathis and uh, his wife, and I think Bond says, "You know, why would you want to get back on the road with me and leave this life?" And then it sort of cuts to uh, the wife asking to have uh, her back oiled, and then it cuts to Bond downing a shot, and then it just, and then it's next scene. I think what they're trying to do is suggest that Mathis is so bored of of serving his wife that he's willing to get on the road, and they try and. Uh, make that happen out of material that just doesn't exist. Yeah, and it it, it just doesn't make any sense when you see it. It's just like literally these half-second shots uh, of a woman frowning, and then Bond Mathis isn't even in shot. Mathis, you know, Bond just downs a shot. You're like, what is what's that meant to mean? It doesn't mean what you what you're trying to project onto it. And obviously, like the the actor playing Mathis obviously hadn't been instructed to act it like that because. He doesn't like. He doesn't look bored or weary. He looks kind of a bit happy, actually, to be out of the the madness of the action. So, is this the the, the purpose of the scene seems to be at completely at cross purposes with what everyone involved in the scene thought was happening? Uh, <laughs> apparently, um, that was it's all. It's it's a bad one. It's a bad one. It is a bad one. Can I just say one one last thing about it? Of course. Uh, uh, so, like um, a crowning moment of irritation I have with him. <laughs> Which is that it has quite a poetic end for uh, Dominic Green. Um, after I mean, he has an inexplicable boss battle with an axe uh, with Bond, uh, and he's a tiny man, and it shouldn't have ever happened. <laughs> but then, whilst the building is blowing up, um, it cuts to him crawling outside uh, just to establish that he somehow managed to get outside. Then cuts back again. Then eventually, Bond picks him up um, and dumps him in the desert with only a can of motor oil to drink, uh, which is. And Dominic Green says, oh, you said you'd let me go. And Bond's like, well, I have. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and that's, that's you know, that's a, a, a cruel and uh, but fitting end to a major villain. But then, like a scene later, it's revealed that he died not only having drunk the motor oil, 
but having been shot twice, presumably by Spectre agents who bothered to track him down to the middle of a desert. And that just undermines the entire thing. Like, well, well, you didn't need to kill him twice. Bond had already done it, you know, and in a a clever way. Yeah. Inexplicable. Why? Why? (laughs) Why? Why? That makes no sense. Yeah. I actually have a physical aversion to that film. I watched it it yesterday and still haven't quite recovered from being bloody wet. I mean, it's it's upwards from here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, at least a little bit. I think Maybe so. upwards and downwards and upwards. Anyway, uh, Skyfall is the next film uh, directed by Sam Mendes, who's uh, well-known in the theatre world. He's done a lot of uh, really good uh, TV Shakespeare adaptations. He directed American Beauty, which was secretly terrible, but won lots of awards. Um, Jarhead, which was secretly just okay. And 1917, which is good good action masquerading as somber war fiction um again neil purvis robert wade get credits but uh john logan uh is now on the writing cast and he's uh known for various films such as any given sunday gladiator the aviator and hugo so he's you know he's worked with lots of uh, big name directors Mm. um and i think importantly the cinematography is lent by Roger Deakins, who is a staple of the Coen Brothers films. I think he might have done the cinematography of all the Coen Brothers films? Question mark? I think they have. Uh, He's certainly done a lot of the Sam Mendes films, uh, cinematographer on the Shawshank Redemption, but, uh, you know, a storied cinematographer of uh, who knows how to frame things and make them look dead pretty. Shall I hit you with a synopsis? Yeah, let's do it. Bond is missing, presumed dead after a botched operation. However... An attack on MI6 headquarters and a personal threat to M uh, causes him to haul himself out of his boozy torpor to face down a former MI6 agent, Raoul Silva, who was once the double-O golden boy but sacrificed by M to make a deal with the Chinese. Raoul is captured, but it's all part of his brilliant plan to escape immediately (laughs) and then attempt a very half-hearted assassination on M. Uh, which results in Bond and M fleeing to Scotland for a tower defence sequence against Raoul's <laughs> army of goons. What did you make of this, Tom? You know what? Uh, this one, this one, um, I actually quite like because, and perhaps solely because, uh, when I think back across all the the Craig era, hmm. the action sequences that stand out that have lodged themselves in my brain all come from this film, um, hmm. and it's the so the uh the the kind of dirt is that bike, because it's literally 16 hours long uh it is and, and that's that's about like 17 hours too long as well given <laughs> there's a lot of plot in this though uh the so the dirt bike chase sequence across the rooftop roof of the bazaar in turkey that is just like lodged in my brain is a fantastic incredible bond action scene mm. moment um, and that transitions into another like absolutely absurd sequence where they're on, they're on a train uh fighting one gets into a digger that's on the train uses the digger to tear the back out of a carriage and then walks through the train while passengers look alarmed it's Mm, it's just it's very very good it's it's incredibly well shot um later on i think that there's this beautiful beautiful sequence in a a building surrounded by uh, a skyscraper surrounded by screens it's kind of the skyscraper itself seems to be made of glass so the light of the neon signs reflects throughout the building as bond sneaks up on an assassin and has this incredible fight with him which is where they're both just like pitch black silhouettes against this blazing neon uh advertising happening behind them 
Um, and this, the scene is just like, it's very well choreographed, but also, and thank God for this after watching the last film, the camera, <laughs> the camera yeah. just sits still and slowly pans in on these guys having this desperate fight with a gun that they're trying to, uh, it's kind of like a, a sniper rifle that they're, they're exchanging hands and trying to shoot each other with it as they're fighting, having this martial arts fight. Um, and it's just, a, it's just virtuoso stuff. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and that, that logic is my mind. And then towards the end, the, the, the tower defense sequence in, yeah. uh, in the Highlands. Also, just like there are moments of that that are just really, really super cool. But I would say, um, anyone listening to this who enjoyed that sequence or the idea of that sequence, watch episode five of Gangs of London. Oh, yes. Because um, for me, the director of the raid directs that episode. Uh, and I, I, I can't imagine, there has to be a connection between Skyfall and that scene. Like, I have to think that he must have seen that and be like, no, I, I think I'd do it this way, actually. And then actually got to do it in Gangs of London. Yeah. And it's a 40-minute siege sequence that is one of the best kind of, best action sequences I've seen, just full stop and, and it's in, in television series. It's just this prolonged siege where that there are these kind of like special forces trying to get into this uh, kind of mansion or a kind of a farmhouse uh, from mm. l- many different angle, angles as beleaguered people inside have these desperate floor fights uh, and it, it's almost wordless and I think you could watch it not knowing who any of the characters are and be, be invested and surprised and shocked by how it plays out over the course of the best better part of an hour if I remember rightly extraordinary yeah. stuff um, so uh, watching it back again the, the Skyfall's uh, Skyfall's kind of uh, tower defense sequence feels like a pale imitation of a, a thing I've seen absolutely nailed, basically. But yeah, true. The, the rest of the sequences and the way the film's shot generally is just uh, it's beautiful. Like, it's a really beautiful film. Um, and for that, just on a pure aesthetic level, I think it is one of the best of the series, actually, mm. uh, which does raise it up in my estimations. Though, it also does have some problems. I wonder what you think. Well, I, just to... Yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely um, a film of many excellent parts, and I don't think mm. some of them really works for me. But I do think action scenes in stairwells or on trains are always the best. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And it's and I think um, and this, the series has several, and they're always really good. And it's because the filmmakers have to contend with the constraints of that location, and as a result, the audience sees them too. And they empathize with the yeah. characters who are obviously dealing with the physical constraints of those locations. That's why they're, they're really, really good. Um, I think all of the best action set pieces in this entire series have shared that. Uh, they all have really good constrained locations, which the characters have to think about carefully and use in different ways. And this film's good for that. I think uh, the, the cinematography lends it a particular kind of coherence but it's also, I would say, watching it now, like I wonder if this is a difference between seeing it on the big screen mm. and seeing it on the small screen. When I first saw it, and certainly it's a relief after the nonsense of the previous film, but when I first saw it, I felt like there was kind of epicness to the way in which the, the camera chooses to capture things. There's lots of establishing shots. It takes a great deal of care and time to show you the locations in which things are happening and where all the different people are within it. Watching it now, I, I felt like because the film is incredibly fucking long anyway, mm. God, <laughs> and I don't know that it's long to any particular good end. Like uh, those 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 films, perhaps because they were robbed a bit of their grandeur by watching them on the small screen, 
just felt more like padding than uh, they were worth uh, this time around. Did you uh, did you kind of see a difference in the way that you viewed it, watching it on small screen versus uh, in the cinema this time? Yeah, absolutely. I've found this with all the films, actually. Uh, and this is one of the series where uh, the, the Bond films in particular, I think, are very, very different if you see them on the big screen compared to the small screen. I think that this point can be kind of overplayed in criticism, is that... Oh, this simply has to be seen on the big screen. It's a different experience. Uh, you'll interpret it differently. But I think it is true for these films because um, the those beautiful action scenes and those incredible moments kind of uh, blot out the noise of the plot. And the plot in Bond films is always overcomplicated. It's this yammering, incessant shuffling of a pack of kind of goons and tra- amazing travel to loads of different places instantly often for no reason keeping track of those names uh, it's kind of like a, a bait and switch if it's if it's too complicated then you don't have a chance to really particularly think about it in the cinema and poke holes in it so you're what it does is um the actual plotting puts you into the sense of kind of like oh uh this assumed sense that something complicated and interesting is happening <laughs> right uh, yeah it's about the aesthetic of of complication rather than the actual complication rather than if you would think about it and kind of really unpack what, what people's relationships are uh how everyone's betraying everyone else what that means emotionally blah 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 there's no time to do that like it, it's it, uh oh there's a what's the, the the there's been a mega successful kind of uh, cop drama uh, about internal affairs in Britain. Uh, line of duty line of duty line of duty mm. does this what uh, line of duty does is instead of like uh, crafting a watertight plot that finally like pushes its characters through uh, some sort of emotional arc that creates these uh, emotional moments is it creates noise it just creates loads and loads of noise loads of characters loads of uh, people you have to remember loads of kind of like twists and turns and people betraying each other occasionally very well shot action, action sequences and you're left with the impression of a thriller Mm. Uh, with yeah. none of the actual kind of you know mechanical substance of a thriller and that's what Skyfall is like to me because when I was in the cinema it's almost like a texture thing that the, these action sequences very loud and there's a lot going on but they're kind of um, they're gripping uh, and then when they cease something equally gripping but of a different texture needs to occupy the space and I think the plotting in this film basically serves that role. Like all of the, the him wanting to be captured, and then that you know having, uh, having this weird thing with M, and then having you know Bond discovering his family lineage for some reason, just because that's a I guess a thing that might affect a character. So here it is. Um, all, uh, <laughs> so yeah. you got, you go out of all this kind of visual noise and into this uh, plot noise, uh, and I wonder if it's actually intentional. I wonder like whether these plots are just overcomplicated as a kind of um, pacifying mechanism to get you through the film <laughs> to the end. Um, rather It'd be than cheaper actually... if it didn't, I think. You know, I, I suspect mm. it's not intentional. I don't, well, I don't think the languorousness and, and the kind of convolution of it is necessarily, I don't think the effect that those things have is intentional. Like, uh, I, 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 don't think I so have either. a feeling that uh, Mendes thinks that he is being brilliantly discursive about the nature of Bond. And he's, you know, talking about, you know, and investigating the iconography and meaning of Bond. But, but I, I think a lot of it is is quite shallow and, and fluffy. And I, I don't know. There's a sort of, 
I, I really enjoy the set pieces, like I said, but I found it over watching it this time pretty leaden to watch. And I don't think it's as smart as uh, is it thinks it is, or perhaps like you say, it doesn't need to be that smart because it's just about having the air of smartness. But it definitely has this unearned austerity to it in that it sort of alludes to these sort of grim realities of global politics and the security state, but it doesn't really have anything to say about them. It's But it's just a little bit miserable. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, there's a sort of kind of brazenly discursive aspect to it, which I find slightly vexing, whereas, you know, Casino Royale has loads of things to say about Bond, right? But it says them in its actions and in its themes. Whereas in Mendes films, you'll literally get a character after a character just openly wanging on about what it means to be a Bond in today's bleak world. <laughs> and, you know, it'll say something like, were you expecting an exploding pen? We don't really go in for that anymore. And mm. it's just a little bit kind of... I know that stuff should have been saved for the essays about the film and not put in the film itself. Oh, I think it's precious time, isn't it? It's precious mm. time of your life. You're never getting back when <laughs> you hear the <laughs> hear the speech about uh, about the nature of Bond in the modern world in a film that is appallingly long for what it's trying to do. Mm. And uh, I just I don't know. Uh, it feels like films increasingly just action films are getting so so long. Action films are the hardest things to watch for a long time because mm. they take a lot of on, a lot of energy to watch. Actually, uh, it's such. It can become almost stressful to be assaulted by uh, action sequences and then have to keep up with the plot for three hours. This one isn't three hours, but you know it feels like it. Um, yeah, I, I, I tell you what. Hmm. Sorry, Karen. I tell you what. It's it's really weird to me that in a major franchise like this, uh, in the third of those films, that it feels like it's already trying to draw a curtain on on Craig as Bond. Like he's clapped out, he's tired, he's cynical. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like he isn't even onto Spectre's tail yet. And yet, like the majority of the films in this series are all about how old and tired he is and how he doesn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and like that does impart a level of exhaustion to the viewer mm. because everything in the film from Craig's tired face to the sad things he's saying as a sad shooty man is that he doesn't want to be doing it anymore and nobody wants to be here. Like, I, I can't help but feel a bit wearied by like, like that. Like, if nobody in the film seems to be having fun, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not either. I don't know. And I, without any kind of real structure to it, like no focus, no single sort of crime, it just feels like this kind of slightly miserable breadcrumb trail. Uh, and, you know, I don't feel like the breadcrumbs are all that convincing or they're not that interesting. Like, as you know, a stolen list of agents again, which that's, is that's the noise that's the plot noise that that yeah, yeah it's this being yeah but you know spies have been fighting over lists of secret agents in films forever including at least four of the mission impossible films it seems <laughs> so like, like and it's fine but like you know spy's only job if spy's only job is protecting lists of spies then the issue <laughs> could be solved by simply not having spies i would say <laughs> do you find the whole mummy issues thing uh interesting uh, I thought it was kind of a, a garish way to make a villain interesting. Uh, oh, I was thinking about Bond and M's relationship as much oh, as uh, well, uh, Bardem's. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I I like that they hate each other a little bit in the first film. I hmm, give back for that actually because like a kind of um, puerile, undeveloped, emotionally stunted man like Bond might just identify uh, M as mother, hmm. as Roll does. Like maybe he does, but I don't think the film is saying that. 
I think, uh, I think, yeah. Like, perhaps it's saying that you know Bond can only care about women on certain axes. Uh, one axis is um, have sex and then they die. Axis, and the other one is, uh, oh my god, a, a person who reflects. She, he's adopted, right, as, as a character. Like that's a, yeah. a point the film's about. Uh, so the, the mother figure and the father figure are obviously going to be sore points as drama demands. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I think it was intelligently explored. I think it was just sort of there. It's like the adoption stuff and the family stuff that pops up and the, the reason why he goes to Scotland for the big tower defense mm-hmm. thing. It's just there. It's, I don't think it says anything about the character. It's not part of the rhythm of the film. Uh, and not, I don't think it says anything. When, when um, Bond turns up at M's flat, as he often does throughout the series, mm. um, and he uh, he's he's been out of the service. He's been presumed dead, and he turns up, and he says, "Oh, I'll go downstairs and change." And then M says, "No, I've sold your flat." That sort of implies that they used to live above each other. <laughs> oh, what? Whoa, whoa, sitcom <laughs> upstairs, downstairs, sort of what, drama. What it's weird about, line? Yeah, I don't know quite what that what that whole thing is in trying to imply, but it's kind of odd. I don't know. I think, how do you feel about um, Javier Bardem as uh, Raúl Silva? His his performance, I find it quite mesmerizing, but I also think it might be very homophobic. It's hard to know. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, there's um, there's there's a scene that like might have always almost been challenging, where um, he basically bonds tied to a chair and he advances across the room doing his big villain speech, and then basically just starts touching Bond, and they have this kind of back and forth, and it's kind of there are strong gay threat vibes to it that I'm not sure they were really going for <laughs> with this guy. Like I think that the sexual policies of Bond would be made more interesting by the fact Bond will, ha- will happily use men, women, anyone that he can use to get the job done and to get what he wants. That is very much in character for Bond. Um, but I don't think this was exploring that. I think this was like, uh oh. Bond's being touched by a man. Oh no, this is part of what makes him a menace, <laughs> uh, which is a, 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 don't fall on the wrong side of that line. <laughs> it's not cool. Yeah, I mean the thing is, they sort of try and get out of that by uh, by him saying, "I best suppose you've never been touched like this before," right. or something, and James uh, Bond saying, "How do you know I haven't?" Yeah, right. Implying that he's had gay relationships as well, but it's just not quite enough to undo the fact that this is being presented as. Uh, a, creepy gay predator yeah um yeah that's the vibe yeah yeah uh, again you've got to do that stuff intelligently potentially a good moment like potentially like mm. a really interesting moment for the character uh and it's just like having uh, this is this goes hand in hand with like the bond villain is an established uh cultural archetype now and what a bond villain is they tend to have some sort of disfigurement um, mm. uh, they tend to have tend to be psychopaths, but also very showy psychopaths um, that tend to make speeches, uh, and they tend to be larger than life in a way that is kind of kind of entertaining, perhaps sometimes even funny. Uh, and with that, all those prerequisites in place, when you slot a character into the Bond villain role, if one of those factors uh, also he likes men. And playing with mm. that, like you, you gotta, you gotta think about the context of the the Bond villain and what that is, and how weirdness and uh, this concept of weirdness, of, which often is communicated through disfigurement, through disability and stuff like that, in really uncomfortable ways. Uh, then sort of like, oh, let's just map 
homosexuality onto that as well. <laughs> Let's just make that part of the kind of Bond villain archetype. It's, oh, you can't, just don't really, unless you know what you're doing, don't please, <laughs> actually. <Yeah. laughs> well, uh, do, 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 am I on point? Do, do you think like... Oh yeah, do, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think it's a, a very off-colour moment, really. Um, I can see that they were trying to go for something interesting by suggesting that that uh, it wasn't as alarming to Bond as it's being presented as. But mm, I, I just, uh, before we move on, I'd like to um, pay homage to real proper actor Rory Kinnear having to say things like, strip the headers, trace the source. And <laughs> it was sent by an asymmetrical security algorithm. <laughs> Poor man, shut yeah. in this room. <laughs> Surrounded by CGI tables that everyone has to touch because... because uh, uh, minority <laughs> Report happened. So then, after Minority Report was shot, every flipping film had to have this. And yeah, the people. UIs don't make any sense. <laughs> no, no. A, it's this thing of like where someone there's a table which is also a screen. They fling a thing off uh, off to the side of the table and it pops up on a random window. <laughs> it's like what? what are you <laughs> like the, the, desperate to make uh, data analysis look interesting visually. <laughs> Trying a bit too hard. I, just, I do I do like the way that Raoul Silva dies. I think uh, aside mm. from the dubious uh, aspects of his characterization, I think it is like an interesting performance from um, uh, Javier Bardem. And like specifically uh, after he gets the knife in the back, his, his, the kind of expression as he dies is great because <laughs> yeah, he, so he doesn't care about dying. He just cares about being beaten. And it's he's so annoyed. Let's <laughs> have this exasperate, exasperated gasp, even as yeah. he does this kind of zombie-like walk towards Bond and then flops down in actually like a very like almost too comical way. Uh, mm. uh, it's also like I read that as him wanting his his theatrical death, like uh, closing in on M, and like he's kind of crafted this big kind of plot in his his mind about how mm. his life and his his death was going to play out, and he was going to all his delicious machinations were going to lead to his perfect exit from the stage and that uh, a, a gorilla in a suit threw a knife in his back at the very moment where he was about to get that. And his reaction is just like, no, Pete, why? Uh, it's very good. <laughs> uh, and also, yeah, uh, shout out to Judy Dench for naming that role completely throughout the whole series, even though, I, what were they going for with them? Uh, now you've said that uh, the, the thing about like Bond and, M being his mum dynamic. I kind of like hadn't thought about that very much. And now I'm a bit weirded out by it. <laughs> <laughs> Time for another rewatch. Well, I mean, family becomes important in the next film. Mm. Uh, Spectre. Uh, again, Sam Mendes, uh, returning screenplay writers, plus uh, Jez Butterworth, who is known from the theatre for uh, apparently an amazing play production. All my friends loved it. I never quite got to see it, called Jerusalem, uh, which I'd really like to see. He also uh, has writing credits on Edge of Tomorrow and uh, Ford v, v Ferrari, which was surprisingly good, despite being about cars. And also, apparently, he's going to be part of the writing crew for the untitled fifth Indiana Jones film. Oh. Um, <laughs> different cinematographer this time, uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema who is known for, amongst other things, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Dunkirk and other uh, Nolan uh, films. Mm -hmm. It's sort of hard to synopsize Spectre because it really isn't about anything. It's just a, a series of things that happen it's, in exhausting succession. It's a nothing <laughs> nothing film to me. It's almost like I couldn't rate the film because it's a zero in my brain. I mean, like, if you told me that the writer's strike disrupted this one, that would be a lot more believable mm -hmm. to me. <laughs> um, but it begins... So, 
<clears throat> Bond is on thin ice after uh, he, he does an unsanctioned mission in Mexico. Uh, he blows up a building, throws some people out of a helicopter who, who questionably didn't need to be thrown out of a helicopter. Like the pilot, well, the pilot hasn't done a thing. He's just <laughs> probably just, you know, being chartered. <laughs> Go straight out of the window. Anyway, MI6 is under fire from uh, another Whitehall Mandarin who seeks to create a unified global surveillance network and shut down the double O program. Uh, so M grounds Bond for his own good, but Bond has no intention of staying put. Uh, and it's revealed he's following a lead in a posthumous message uh, from the old M, Dench M. He follows this lead to Italy, where he sexually assaults a widow and locates a shadowy cabal, meeting under the leadership of someone from James's past. And unbelievably, it takes literally over an hour before we find out who that is, yeah. what, the, what the name he pulls out of thin air means. During which time, Bond has located an old enemy in the form of Mr. White, uh, and uh, who's now dying from radiation poisoning. And he promises to give Bond some information if Bond protects his hot daughter. Uh, the information isn't particularly of any significance, but nonetheless, uh, Bond uh, finds the daughter in her psychiatry practice and then takes her to bed and then to Morocco. And then <laughs> Bond's nemesis is revealed to be his estranged brother by adoption, who is thought dead in an avalanche, which killed Bond's adopted parents. Uh, but now he's returned as none other than Stavro Blofeld. And he has uh, engineered not only the avalanche which killed Bond's parents, adopted parents, but also everything in the preceding films. Um, then a telescope explodes again. <laughs> and uh, uh, Bond and uh, Mr. White's daughter end up back in London where people are repeatedly kidnapped, escape, and are re-kidnapped until MI5 literally explodes. Um, I feel like this has all of the problems of Skyfall, but worse. <laughs> How do uh, you feel? I completely agree. Uh, this is almost my least favourite one. Yeah. It's is close, that, is it? that close? It's that close. And it, it like, given how I described um quantum solace as being a, a, almost like a physical assault on my person um th this is kind of like a this is too much to ask of like, ask of any audience member to suffer through such convoluted <laughs> horseshit for so long for so long <laughs> and to actually not be particularly rewarded by any memorable action sequences or anything and for it to be actually a very dreary plodding film uh mm. it, despite the amount of sheer amount of plot they put in it like Oh, yeah. It feels I, like it has almost, a lot to say about Bond, but none of it is interesting. It's almost, like, it's almost the one I hate the most. So it, might, it might actually be the one I hate the most. It's really hard to call. Mm. Like, I, I find that, like, Quantum of Solace is just an objectively poorly made film, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Whereas this one is actually offensive, I think, in its objectives. Like, I, I think it's too stupid to be a spy film and it's too slow to be an action film. And it has, it do, actually, I do think it does have some really good moments, uh, one of which is on a train, unsurprisingly, uh -huh. with um, uh, Big Dave Fingernails, uh, played by <laughs> Dave Bautista. Dave Bautista. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, it's really good because the constraints of just being basically a two-dimensional fight means mm. that they have to kind of really consider what things they are doing, what walls are being, you know, punctured by falling bodies. Um, and this kind of like, you know, it becomes explicatory in its composition uh, and it's really good. And then it's ruined by the addition of him saying, oh, shit, in an Italian <laughs> accent before being yoinked off the train. Um, but yeah, 
I feel weirdly protective of Dave Bautista. Uh, I, like, I like him. I, I, yeah. I think I've, it always makes me weirdly happy to see him in a film beating <laughs> someone up. It's like, good for you, Dave Bautista. Good for you. They, they, I'm sorry they made you say that terrible line, but <laughs> you did the rest of it splendidly. And also you're pretty good in the start of Blade Runner 2042 as well. Oh, he looks so good in a suit as well. Christ. Yeah. Surprisingly, how does such a big man wear a suit like that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed. Tailoring. Tailoring that we will never be able to afford. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Also that's a, a body that we will never achieve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think like the big weakness of this film is Blofeld, surprisingly. Mm. And you know, like, because he is meant to be the arch villain of Bond forever and yeah, also yeah. this sequence of Bond films. And yeah, and, th- and it isn't to say anything about Christopher Voltz's performance, which I think is fine. It's just that the film gives him no substance as a villain. Uh, except that he is inexplicably uh, in it has this pointless personal connection to Bond, which feels so tortuous and implausible mm. and retconned. It doesn't feel necessary that they had to put it in. It feels like, ah, oh, we need to say something about Bond. Let's go back and mine his, you know, family connections again. That'll make it really personal. And like, no, by making it personal, it completely undermines the idea of this person being a global threat. You know, he's meant to be the leader of this globy, globe, globy, global shadowy cabal. Yeah. And but yeah, his entire raison d'etre is just to piss on Bond's chips. He's like, it was all me, James. And you're like, really? You engineered <laughs> Silver's mummy issues? I don't think you did. That just That's so confected. It's so weak. And on top of that, he is so easily thwarted again and again. <laughs> There's no way this guy could run a shadowy global cabal. None of his plans are even the slightest bit successful. It's just like, and even when it it promises to be interesting, like Blofeld promises to do something to Bond, which will really throw a spanner in the works. Bond just effortlessly gets out of it. Like Bond, Bond literally has part of his brain drilled out, which allows him to recognize faces. And you think, wow, okay, this is going to make the next bit really interesting where he can't tell who's who. And what happens is Bond just gets up and he's fine and he shoots a few people, steals a helicopter and the telescope explodes again. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well. And then then Blofeld's big move is to put Bond in a situation where he can either save Madeline and die, or try to save Madeline and die with her, or he can walk away knowing that he he abandoned her. And that 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 setup is really explicitly laid out. And Bond just goes and straight straight up saves her straight away, and like not even with any difficulty by Bond standards. And like, I know obviously the nature of these things demand that Bonds thwarts these plans, mm. but it's just so straightforward. He just, Blofeld's like, "You'll never do this," and then Bond just does it. It's just <laughs> like, "Oh, okay." And the problem with all this is it makes that Blofeld to be an absolute fucking tool, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. and not an arch villain. Yeah, I, I, I didn't find the performance particularly inspiring either just like it just doesn't have much to do yeah like what do you do i suppose the thing is about doing that it kind of um it makes everything in the universe about james bond Mm. and when you do that everything that happens in the universe validates james bond as a hero um so like every movie he makes it's what we talked about earlier in the the kind of the sense that casino royale he is kind of unmoored from the, the there's no the film isn't propping up his moral stance or making him a moral figure in any way. But when the universe bends towards a character so, uh, so powerfully, um, you can only be expected to think that this character exists to be validated in everything they do in, in a film like right. this. Uh, and then once you're in that position as an audience member, you, you're expected to buy into every person, like every action that he does. And this is what makes it like, 
bonding hero framing is super problematic because it potentially normalizes terrible behavior. Bond mm. in Casino Royale mode, uh, as as being as Fleming, I think probably intended, certainly intended for him to be this amoral, difficult figure who is a terrible person but necessary and useful to the state in certain ways. That's that we've we're past. We're past the point of at this point where we've flipped now from yeah he's a complete white knight yeah we've flipped from the casino rail mode to the hero mode completely uh, and thoughtlessly and it's and it, for it to also be so boring at the same time <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> unforgivable. What's what's annoying about the flip to white knight status is that there's a whole thing in this about uh, you know whether the double O program needs needs oversight. And like Mendez spends a lot of fucking time on this, both in Skyfall and this film. Mm. And all it comes down to is, you know, oh, if only there wasn't all this inconvenient oversight stopping our bally brilliant boys doing what the fuck they like. And like that, that question of whether the double O program needs oversight would have more bite if, if Bond wasn't a perfect white knight. If like, if you got to question Bond's moral compass, I, I mean, Okay, outside the many and frequent sexual assaults he commits during the course of these these films, uh, in one case against a grieving widow who literally needs him to survive, which seems uh, the the most unforgivable. But mm. like all of that, the tenor of the film sort of gives that stuff the thumbs up, or at least doesn't question it. But the entire debate about whether the double O's need to be kept on a leash has no real grounding in real issues. Which is sort of like fine, but like why even bother to raise them at length then? Mm. Because it just means the films have this sort of feeling of grim sobriety, but no conviction or or interest in untangling these real issues. Yeah. Also, C obviously stands for cunt. <laughs> Say it, you cowards. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> what a what a waste of time. <laughs> well, after this discussion, is it's now my least favorite. <laughs> We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Gonna... We'll, I think. I think we'll rank them in the end. But uh, yeah, we'll see. So, on to the final of these mm. films: No Time to Die, now directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who is known for, amongst other things, as uh, Sinombre, Jane Eyre. Uh, he uh, wrote uh, part of the reboot of It, um, and he's also uh, he also directed at least some of True Detective season one. Nice. Uh, screenplay again Neil Purvis and Robert Wade uh, latch onto it like writing limpets and still get their credit Um, but uh, 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 Joji Fukunaga seems to also be on the screenplay as a a writer and as does uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge who Hmm. you will know from Fleabag uh, Killing Eve and also along with Jez Butterworth writing the untitled fifth Indiana Jones film what? that film's going to be wild (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, it's so Bond's retirement uh at the end of spectre uh with madeline who is the the daughter uh lovely daughter of mr white um it's it's short-lived uh there's an attempted assassination attempt on bond which leads bond to believe that madeline betrayed him uh and so he ditches her and returns to the line of duty uh, and then it cuts five years later a bioweapon is stolen by spectre agents uh, operating apparently on Blofeld's instruction, thanks to a bionic eye that allows him to issue instructions from Belmarsh Prison. But this weapon is turned against Spectre by a mysterious new entity. Could this entity be connected to the creepy mask-wearing man who attempts to kill and then rescues a young Madeline Swan in the pre credit sequence? You bet it can. 
I I thoroughly enjoyed this one less for the premise uh, and the plot, which I think is kind of uh, ludicrous and also Hughes quite close to Mendez's sort of mythologizing, <coughs> self-discursive, boring Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, but it but it kind of rescues uh, itself by managing to be like really compelling scene by scene, expertly constructed action. Um, uh, and despite being twenty minutes longer than Skyfall Spectre, it feels really snappy <laughs> by comparison. How do you how did you feel about it? This, this one flashed by in the cinema. I was just like just relentlessly entertained by it, um, which is a uh, it's basically all I want a film to do if I pay for a ticket to go see an action film uh, and a Bond film in particular. I, I don't want it to drag, and uh, it'd be funny to, to play with Bond as an archetype, but I don't necessarily want to be dragged into views on um, the oversight of uh, British intelligence's, you know, extracurricular uh, organisations. I, I, just please leave me alone with Bond doing a cool thing sometimes uh, and having it beautifully shot and just expertly rendered. And you really feel like the money in this film has been well spent in terms of when it wants to achieve the spectacle it wants to do. Um, there's fun kind of... Uh, there's it's kind of like a banter film. It reminds me a bit like a Marvel banter film, almost. It's, it's one of the good things for James Bond to pick up from the Marvel films, perhaps, is that having two characters who are thrown together have a fun banter fight uh, in the middle of a real fight is a, is a, a, a good way to deliver uh, vicious action while also keeping it light a little bit. And this film keeps it light until, you know, the, the end, which uh, apparently was, was pretty affected a lot of people at the ending. Like, it was, hmm. I, 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 I thought, found it really landed for me in the cinema. Um, yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, there's a whole, uh, yeah. Oh, we'll get to it. But yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I tell you what, actually, talking about keeping it light, I think one of the startling things about it is how uh, how the pre-credit sequence slews so close to like unhinged slasher horror. Actually. That's true, actually. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think it's really interesting because you know, obviously, this film has been handed this massive tedious weight of dealing with the mendez bond and his backstory and tying some sort of bow on it but it's actually a lot less rote and a lot less referential in the way it sort of recycles i've written bore iconography down here (laughs) in my notes i meant bond but you you could really see that in the in the pre-credit sequence because every every other bond film reserves this for like an in media res action spectacle with bond at the center and here that's completely discarded for uh, you know describing what terrible thing happens to this little girl mm. you know and mm. it's 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 genuinely quite scary i think it you is. know uh, like proper horror beats you know face at the window jump scares mm. and you know yeah I, I mean you can tell that the director <laughs> had had a hand in the it remake i think from from that mm. Yeah, and it's this horrible thing of like, it just uh, it throws you to this domestic situation that's really awful as well. Like, her, um, mm. the, the the kid's mum is kind of drunk out of her brain on the the sofa, and even in the moment where the assassin comes to kill her, just has no urge to defend herself whatsoever, and it's basically just yeah, fine. And for the daughter to witness all that and then be chased onto the ice by this this mask wearing, it's it's a monstrous thing actually. It is. Mm. I forgot how dark that was actually. Um, but then he saves her, and that that sets up a really interesting yeah, relationship, yeah. I think, uh, which I don't think is quite as well as explored as it as it might be. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's a very long film anyway, so probably best that it didn't get into that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I tell you, tell you, the thing that I love about this this film uh, is that all of the action is incredibly thoughtfully rooted 
in the space in which it is presented. Mm -hmm. Like Bond is always rapidly solving the puzzle of the environment and how to put that space to use effectively. And because it's so explanatory about that, it puts you right there making those decisions with him. And like in the uh, the early section in Italy, just after the attempted assassination, he's trying to make it back fr from this church across this ravine oh, yeah. with this huge bridge to a place with a piazza and the hotel. And that and they use that environment multiple times. Like Bond's on foot at first, uh, and then <coughs> uses a you know, like part of the cabling on the side of the bridge to swing underneath it. Then then there's a, a bit of on a bike where he ramps up like a piece of masonry. Then he goes through the same area and again in a car. And like each time he's like traversing it differently and thinking mm. about it in a different way. And it's really it's really brilliant. I think it's it's a really good way of kind of rooting you in it and making you care about it. And I think it's it's testament to how successful those sequences are that the film sort of loses its way when it moves to the heavily composited you know missile silo uh poison base at the end yeah, yeah. um even though there is a is a great stairwell fight you know doesn't have a train fight in this but it's got a stairwell you've got to have it um but it doesn't know how to use like that's because that's a real physical space it doesn't know how to use the kind of imagined spaces the larger imagined spaces but then everything else like from the from that pre-credit lake house there's a there's a bar in cuba which is really kind of I could draw you the map of that bar. That's how well thought mm. out it is. And there's a chase in the misty forest, which, you know, obviously that environment is unknown by virtue of being misty. But like Bond is still thinking about what makes that place unique and how he can exploit it. Uh, and that's so thrilling. And it sort of like really enhances your connection to the scene and the characters and the stakes. I also, th I don't think he does anything explicitly magical. In this film, which he does often, he just has superpowers mm. at random points in lots of the films, and like he has gadgets and he has a, a bulletproof car that has Gatling guns in it. Uh, yeah, and sure, that's that was that almost broke the film for me immediately. <laughs> when, uh, but it was fine; like it, it worked out okay. But I don't think he does anything like particularly super human by the, the, the standards set by the rest of the films. Uh, does he have a smart blood in this one? I felt like I think that was introduced in the previous one. Every time they said the word "smart blood," I got like ten percent stupider. Oh, I can't remember which film that's in. This might turn into the the villainous threat of this one, which is um, torn from the headlines. Idea of uh, genetic mm. uh, nanobot attack. Mm. Uh, I think that's mm. a really interesting. <laughs> it's a weapon. real thing. Like it's it's a real thing yeah. because like actually like tailored viruses, genetically tailored viruses, is a thing that <laughs> like it's also a terrifying thing. Uh, more importantly, as a device, it's something you kind of understand that you tailor uh, a virus, or in this case, like a, a nanobot attack, to someone's particular genetic identity, and then touch them, and then they would die, just uh, untraceably die. Uh, that's a really good thing you want to stop as a villain. Uh, as a, if a villain's doing this in a Bond film, yeah, Bond, cool, go, go, stop that thing. You know, it, it's actually a good. It, the stakes are good in this film, right? But it's but it's also I mean, Safin uses it first to kill Spectre, who are mm. absolutely evil. And so yeah, there is yeah. a kind of element where there is a sort of trolley problem <laughs> issue <laughs> yeah. with this weapon where, you know, maybe he does indeed intend to use it to wipe out dictators and evildoers and do the world a, a, a favor in a way. Mm. But obviously doing so unilaterally and positioning himself as like judge and executioner is completely unconscionable. But, uh, but then the film doesn't really get into that, but it does play with the idea that he might be more of a sympathetic figure. Because yeah. you first see him, you know, saving a little girl having tried to kill her admittedly but then you know does wipe out uh, the arch nemesis and i have to say 
if Blofeld doesn't serve any real purpose in this series at all, he does do well in his demise, I think, because, uh, I mean, it's, it's a great scene where Bond has been, uh, has been smeared in this poison juice that's coded specifically to Blofeld's DNA. Mm -hmm. Bond doesn't know it, but we know it as the audience that if he touches Blofeld, Blofeld's going to die. Yeah. And you, so you're in this interrogation scene, you, the camera doesn't do anything so crude as to cut directly to like a close up of Bond's hands, but you're so aware of <laughs> yeah. where they are. At yeah, all that's times. really true. Yeah, and and um, Blofeld's in this amazing kind of Hannibal Lecter times ten type prison situation <laughs> yeah. where he's like locked to a chair that has to come down a train track or something, um, which is also just uh, this film is like like compared to the rest of the films, it is. Um, I don't know if camp is the right word. Very showy uh, and, mm. and and very uh, very earnestly happy to be a bit silly with its imagery in order to basically get the message across quickly. Is that uh, I think everyone like the Hannibal Lecter idea. I think is just ingrained to this point where if you see someone locked in a cell like that, it's been repeated by so many films uh, that you get the idea that this is an untouchable maniac who's incredibly dangerous. So they use that visual language to in case Blofeld in various layers of perspects and then having this moment where the face-to-face -face moment, Hannibal Lecter moment um, with Clarice replicated with in a James Bond situation, it's kind of fun. It's just fun. Mm. But this film's really fun, uh, um, which is kind of like a very generic, it's not really a particularly good way to criticise the film to say it's fun, but uh, as an experience to go to the cinema and be entertained by it and amused by it, even mm. while you're invested in the stakes, uh, is actually, it's not hard to achieve. And it's a, it's a, a note that, none of the rest of the films quite achieve <laughs> right uh and even like it would be inappropriate for casino royale to go for that because it's, it's a different film about different stuff trying to achieve a different tone but for this to be so playful but without being too pretentious or wanky about it is was refreshing and nice i liked it yeah i mean i even like bond becoming a father like mm -hmm. i mean if you'd said that was the plot of another Mendes film, I would probably not have bothered to even watch it. <laughs> and I'm not sure that's ever what I wanted from this Bond, who, like, since the second film has just desperate, has been desperate to stop being Bond in quite a drab way. Mm. Like, having a child is just another thing in a long line of things that's made Bond want to quit. But I think it's handled really well. Like, his final sacrifice is also handled, handled well with, like, explicit finality. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that the whole arc that he's on from it's like eager killer to noble knight. I, I think that's, I think that's really a journey into a much more banal and uncomplicated kind of heroism than was promised in, in, um, in Casino Royale. Yeah. But like the crime of instigating that art falls on others' shoulders. <laughs> so <laughs> having been bond, having been handed bond in this state on this trajectory, I think the resolution they give is a, is a credit to the filmmakers. Although, Everybody toasting him afterwards is a little bit sentimental, I thought. Oh, yeah, that's to be said. But I, I thought you were right when you said that this film comes with so much baggage. And for it to sort of so ably bin it off and then yeah. run a, 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 ultimately a story about a dad who finds out, you know, he wants to protect his daughter and then, you know, it, it, it ends up, uh, it clarifies his priorities and then makes a sacrifice at the end. And also, mm. but without the this idea that he's... Oh, he's, he's so old. His body is failing. He's, he's, <laughs> he's failed his test to be in MI6. Oh, he's a rogue agent. He's on, uh, you know, uh, without any of those devices, just to make it, a, uh, you know, uh, a film about Bond discovering something that he might want to live for and then having to die for it. That's a very old kind of plot device, but it's effective. 
And mm. if you can just like dump all of the bullshit for the rest of the series and just hit that nail that point, well done. And for, and also to deliver all the action scenes that you know you you expect the level that you expect from a Bond mm. franchise. For all that's just happened in two hours. Very happy with it. Really, really enjoyed it. I think a lot of a lot of that credit. Uh... The sort of grounding of his relationship and his his role of father is actually uh, credit to Leia Sadu, um, mm, who yeah, yeah. really uh, has a bit of uh, a, a nothingy character on paper, but her performance of it is gives it a real kind of depth, I think, uh, and complexity, which isn't necessarily there in the in the kind of structure of it or the writing of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, like, I don't feel that these films really do a good job of assembling like an ensemble around Bond, like uh, it, they try in this film to sort of get the gang back together. But like, uh, you know, I, I like the individual kind of brief performances, uh, uh, like Ben Wishel is, uh, as Q, yeah, et cetera. But, but I don't know that they have enough to make them feel like, like I care about them as a gang of people, you know? I like, mm. I like Jeffrey Wright a lot, actually. I think uh, he does enough in these films uh to for you to mourn his his passing as a character uh, and for you to feel suitably vengeful towards ash that little impish faced <laughs> cia agent i was really hoping that ralph fines would get to do more as m mm. instead of be just an incredibly nagging presence in i think it's is it spectre where you so he comes in at the end of skyfall i think and then in spectre he's just sort of berates Bond and is irritated by him but without any of the kind of relationship that he had with uh Judy Dench's version of M. What's weird is it's like a reversion to type because right. you know M's of old and yeah, like yeah. every they're the bureaucrat right yeah well yeah but it, it's also the sort of like the head of the precinct role in any film where a cop is you know you know it, oh it's ready you don't do it by the book but god damn you're a good <laughs> cop kind of thing mm. and he sort of falls into that role whereas dench was really breaking from that yeah. that mold yeah. and it's it's sort of weird i i, I like ralph Fiennes as a presence but he he i i don't think they they find something interesting for his character to do really no i also like uh anna de armas's paloma in this i think uh mm. character is great fun very briefly introduced uh but but good what do you think of like uh, Nomi, I think, is the name of the character, the new 007. Uh, I thought it was, the way it was played was, to me, painfully tokenistic. Mm. Uh, in a way that I think, like, it's, it's in the context where uh, there's, a, there's a certain discourse among certain people of political persuasion that says that male role models are being replaced by women, and that leaves men with nothing to believe in. <laughs> um <laughs> And this came to a crescendo around uh, Doctor Who, uh, moving to having uh, a woman play doc the Doctor, which is like, <laughs> I can't even understand why that would be a problem. But, uh, and then, you know, uh, it's a kind of like straw man argument that like, what if Bond was eventually ever cast and played by a woman? How how can we destroy this bastion of morality that men, young men, have been bending towards, like flowers towards the sun? How can we burn this down? What will men will be left with? They will become criminals. They will become Blofeld. Um, <laughs> and I think perhaps by accident, uh, her character kind of tried to perhaps play with that, but also just kind of bought into it a little bit by doing so. You always give the, that give that narrative too much credence by casting someone to who oh a black woman is in the 007 role. 
oh, do you find that threatening? Do you? Do you? Do you? Well, wh- why are you asking that question? <laughs> it, what, what, it's not worth asking that question. And also, it, it, it's just like, why can't you just have a black woman character on, you know, as a character in the plot on their own terms, rather than having to be a threat to, mm. uh, like a, a paper threat to the, this masculine ideal. I think it was, it, it's, it was done playfully and perhaps with good intent, but I found it to be, I, th- I found it to be a bit of a token move, to be honest. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it because I mean, I, I remember the dialogue around the time uh, of Money Penny. She's introduced in Skyfall. Um, and you, th- and there was a suggestion in that that she was going to be she, that she's being set up to replace Bond, uh, and then it's revealed at the end that she's actually Money Penny, mm-hmm. and she's going to be benched as a secretary forever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so I feel like this is sort of like a, a, a sort of an apology for that, but it's also not substantiated by making Nomi more of a character. Yeah, and then there's a bit like you know halfway through where she goes, "I have come to realize that is you." who is 007 and not I. Yeah. And then she just disbanishes. It's like, <laughs> yeah. And then she, that? she drinks to him at the end as though he was a good friend. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of this has been earned really. Mm. Um, but yeah. Not great. Not but, uh, that's what I meant. Like when, at the very start of the conversation, when I said like Bond makes these like clumsy lurching attempts to come back into modernity. And yet all of the tropes that make it successful have to be kept intact uh, because if Bond becomes unrecognisable to the people who've grown up with Bond, uh, then people will stop going to see those films. Fuck them, I say. Um, so, in summation, <laughs> <laughs> give me your ranking. Give me your ranking oh, and tell oh. me what you think overall. Well, Casino Royale, Casino Royale's the best. It's the best one. It's just a great film in its own right. I think if you knew nothing about Bond, it's still the most thrilling and you know intriguing uh, piece of spy fiction that exists in this particular series. Uh, second, I'm torn between No Time to Die and Skyfall because I do like spectacle a lot, and I think I experienced experiencing Skyfall in the cinema has had an enduring impact. Um, mm. and then maybe the rest of it could kind of go into the bin. <laughs> <laughs> could you have like a one-two? bin is that a list <laughs> sure i don't know I, I, i'll hear what you, you think like. I, I, I like to like, what, what do you reckon oh you no know, i think we probably have the same sort of instincts casino royale no time to die skyfall for me sits quite a lot lower just because although i like parts of it as a whole i find it very boring <laughs> mm. and then quantum of solace i think now sits in fourth place above specter which uh I just, yeah, just oh, a real waste of a of a film and a bad guy and actors and money and everything. I'm like, I feel overall like I feel a bit sorry for Craig, but and I think he deserved better films than were eventually <laughs> delivered on the back of Casino Royale. I feel like Casino Royale is brilliant and he is a good Bond throughout, but yep. I, I feel like we got a very muddled sequence of films. That ultimately, couldn't reconcile the desire to modernize Bond or pay homage to a staid formula. And they, the films want Bond both as like this anti-hero and they want him to be an agent of a decaying empire, but they also want him to be a warrior, a noble warrior. And, you know, like he's cutting through the red tape to meet out justice. And those two things just don't work together. Like you, you can't have both. And on top of that, you have this sort of like really awkward and very disparate handling by 
auteur directors, each of whom sort of tries to wrangle their own vision, but you sense is ultimately defeated by executives who tell them what Bond really is, which is uh, a vehicle for selling luxury watches that make them rich. <laughs> and oh, yeah. um, I just don't think any of the directors really quite managed to make the film theirs uh, or managed to fit it into a larger design. And so you end up with a series which is like shrinking from Bourne's shadow and seemingly regretting its own existence from from the, <laughs> the second film onwards and it's jealous of like uh the mcu production model and it's weighed down with like this feeling of superficial portent and like really woeful introspection uh which would would be a fine thing in a more serious film but it, it isn't going to be a serious film and it's eventually trivialized by like camp and glib insertions uh, and yeah, yet from that sort of that massive mess, they do manage to extract like a really memorable, steely and thuggish and yet sympathetic bond. I think the series delivers one really great film and one other great action film and more than a handful of like really memorable set pieces from the rest. And so I think thanks altogether. <laughs> how, do, how does that stack up to... Brosnan's run then I think it's much better than Brosnan's run I think at least there are things sort of ideas bubbling away here that the mm. Brosnan films uh Goldeneye is just the perfect piece of camera entertainment I, I think it's fantastically stupid and I, I like it a lot um but the rest of those films are pretty bad I think like worse than a lot of these films but shorter yeah, I think, crucially <laughs> <laughs> yes I think I think the Brosnan films aspire to trivial spectacle and yeah, at yeah. their best they really achieve that and when they don't there's just there's no reason to watch them. I think they're just genuinely bad films. Uh, whereas, you know, I don't know whether you can give like credit for effort. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of effort that's been spent on the new Bonds and not always to great effect. But um, I do love Christina Roll. I think that was a great, great idea of what to do with Bond. What would you do with Bond? Who should play Bond next? Wow. I'll start there. Of course, that's the biggest question, isn't it? I it's got to be. Some... I also think it's irrelevant, but <laughs> is it? It's relevant, but having said that, like um, I, I do see by what I said earlier when I said that actually the mannerisms and the way that Bond holds himself, that the physical performance of the actor, kind of does a lot to add depth to the character that the script is never going to give to that character uh, by yeah. necessity. For it to be a Bond script, is he's never going to say anything beyond a certain. Uh, scope so it's got, uh, a lot of the nuance is going to have to be delivered by by the actor uh, and also it has to be someone we've probably not heard of um that tends to be it like i don't think anyone really called that daniel craig would be pulled up to, to, to be bond um i think it, in casino royale it makes perfect sense i think he's actually this amazing smoldering presence on the screen in casino royale uh in a way that he's kind of uh later becomes just kind of it's it's kind of sad that he made such a big point of his age in mm. it, as a plot point in some of those films because like he could have probably kept up the casino royale persona as new bond and he, i think he delivered that fantastically but there's someone new like i think it does have to be someone quite young and someone who i, I the thing is my weird weirdly my instinct is to go back to a more svelte playful brosnan but with more intelligent writing behind him, hmm. um, and I think uh, I think it does have to be a man to play Bond because uh, Bond as a character is so deeply entwined with typical masculine coding that his appeal is also so tied into that that if you were to 
Catwoman as Bond, no one would see it because of all that traditional audience. And yeah, as you say, maybe fuck them and maybe do something else completely. But I think like as a project, uh, as a financial project, it would just be a suicide for the series to do so. I think it's interesting to ask why that's the case uh, and why uh, this icon, this male icon who exists to sell watches, um, is so prized and so central to the series, this global, incredibly popular series, that he, that you cannot abandon the fact that he's a man. Like that, that's interesting. Why is that so so essential mm-hmm. to this whole this whole escapade, this whole uh, massive you know uh, marketing exercise that Bond is? Why why is this core idea of masculinity so central to it? But it is. Uh, I think if you if you cast a woman as Bond, the series uh, has to find it. The series ceases to be Bond in the way it currently is, and maybe that's fine. And maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> but I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I'm 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 sort of with you. Uh, I'm, I'm with Daniel Craig actually, who who's asked this question. He said, uh, you know, uh, no, there's no you know no reason for a woman to play Bond because women should have their own spy movies which are better than Bond. <laughs> you know, I think yeah, like I think almost talent is wasted on Bond, and I get excited by the prospect of you know thinking about young actors and what they would do in the role. You know, I was excited when Idris Elba's name or Chuaitalaji Four's name was was brought up about it but wouldn't it be better for them to have their own spy movies which didn't have the obligation to sell watches and were free from all the sexist racist imperialist baggage <laughs> yeah, of Bond? Right. Yeah. Uh, and like i think you know not you, you can make good bond films but everybody involved could be, make better not bond films i think mm. and there's always this pressure from above which end up with the franchise getting dragged back into sort of like you know quippy watch commercial camp yeah and, it, it's, it's uh, the it's the gravitational pull of just the, the basic money. kind of of money but then uh the money is there because people buy into this uh, like the the, the yeah. market for these things is just absurd like um i think i've uh like in our chats i've described uh james bond as uh doctor who for gq readers <laughs> yes that's very good uh, and that that's it really it's like you, you can you need to have an endlessly regenerating uh pretty male face that you can that basically acts as a clothed rack for uh companies that want to promote their their brands and even if the pro- the products they put onto bond are unobtainable to everyone uh, they will have like a mid-range that some people will be able to afford and they'll make a, a massive buck on it and that's what that's I can't think of another character that is quite so, quite so, so materialistic as Bond, uh, as an enduring kind mm. of hero icon, that to to, to be so uh, defined by uh, that character's ability to sell pretty things to men. <laughs> I, I I can't think of another. I can't think of an equivalent really. Uh, and that's why a Bond film must be made every four to five years. And it, very intelligent, very clever, very talented people will be brought in to try and perhaps redefine it. But the, the gravitational pull at the heart of this whole series remains. <laughs> and and that, that I enjoy that friction. I enjoy, that's why I, one of the reasons why I always watch them, because I, I like to see how talented people try to navigate <laughs> navigate <laughs> that terrible, terrible situation they're getting into. It's not a poison chalice, lots of money involved, but, uh, you know. So, um, challenge that—a challenge that I'm sure tastes like shit to people who <laughs> can make much better things. Shall I tell you what I would do with it? Go on then. 
Yes, this, this is going to betray everything you just said. You're certainly <laughs> wildly unpopular, both with his execs and also fans. Uh, but I, I, I'd abandon it as a movie project. I would try and uh, make a TV series. Um, and I would set it across many decades. And I would start in the 70s where Bond is a new recruit. Mm. But I wouldn't make it specifically about Bond. I think the series would be called Double O or something like that. And it would be Ooh. like a real ensemble thing with Bond initially as a linchpin, but often a, a figure in the background and not necessarily the viewpoint character. And <clears throat> like like a Don Draper figure, in fact, in both in mm. terms of his role within the larger drama and the fact that he is of the time, he's sexist, he's swaggering, and frankly, sociopathic. And like, I think I'd, I'd have him motivated at least partially by glory for you know queen and country at the start. But I think if you drill down into his political outlook, you know, to the extent that he has one, and this is true actually of the Bond as written originally. Hmm. I he's a, he is a fascist, and I think, or at least you know, when it comes down to it, he doesn't really care about how Britain is run as a country or how it interferes with the larger world, as long as the rules don't really apply to him. Right. And I think over the subsequent series, because uh, obviously it would be, get re-syndicated because it's so successful, we see him grow and more and more monstrous, and it's a kind of like a real Walter White arc that I'm I'm plotting for him. So by like season four, he has demonstrated that he obeys no moral code whatsoever and he's betrayed every ideal there is and you absolutely despise him. And I think, you know, like, you know, maybe in the first season, he'd make a mistake on a mission and get someone killed and then lie about it without hesitation. And then by the second season, he's routinely doing at least one absolutely ghastly thing per mission. And then maybe he ends up, you know, killing M because M is, you know, beginning to get suspicious about his corruption. And ultimately, he becomes like the villain within that the rest of the cast of characters have to literally kill and finally free this franchise from the question of how you modernize Bond. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you want a, a, a television series that just blow by blow, just completely from the inside out dismantles uh, this character, uh, eventually evaporates them into dust. <laughs> yes. And then uh, to be soon to be replaced by you know perhaps a bit different but it's also equally exciting hopefully well yeah i think i mean the i think if these bond films had been uh this new series of bond films had ended up being made like five years later they would have tried to mcu it you know yeah there. definitely and, yeah. and uh, i think there's still the opportunity for that with a new reboot um but i i don't know I, for this i think like tonally somewhere between like vince gilligan uh, and maybe like Utopia, you remember the uh, oh, yeah, TV yeah, series, yeah, yeah. TV series series. So I'm like, like packaged in this sort of like cigarette stained '70s drab of Tinker Taylor, but with like a sort of you know heightened black comic lurid theatricality to it. Maybe man, Utopia, Utopia was wild. I need to rewatch that. that was... Yeah, no, I mean that was really good, wasn't it? I, I didn't see the American remake of it. I don't know if that managed to carry through some of the mm. the charm of the original, but it was. Just, yeah, something very sinister and off-key about it, which I really liked. Yeah, me too. Ooh. Yeah. And I'd put, you know, front and centre, Britain's decaying imperial ambitions and its irrelevance and its immorality. And who who wouldn't watch that in their droves, Tom? I would watch it, and I would do a lock-in on the Crate and Crowbar about it. <laughs> very generous. Do we call it a day for this lock-in? I think I think we've covered all of, all of the films. We've, I think we've done it. I think. Then I shall press this big red button and plunge you into the pool of sharks from which you will definitely not escape and destroy my plans. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to go off to my telescope. 
Watch out. Definitely not explosive telescope. Be careful. Be very careful. I'm, I'm going onto a train and uh, oh, shit. it was nice knowing everyone. It's nice. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening, everybody. That was a lock-in. Uh, you can hear more of these sort of things on uh, our YouTube channel, uh, which is youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. You can sign up to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Crate and Crowbar. You can join our Discord, the link for which is on our website, which is crateandcrowbar.com. I think that's it. I think that's it. I'm going to say that's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Tom Senior. Dan Vinny, everybody. everybody.